Uh, welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. Um, missing Alexi today. However, I do have uh, on the podcast uh, Mr. Ezra Levin, um, co-author of the book We Are Indivisible. Looking at it right here, very nice colors on the cover. Um, Thank and you. Also with uh, with Leah Greenberg, and that is that that's your wife, is that right? That's right. We're still married. Power power couple. Yeah, still married <laughs> after writing a book. God, I bet that was a experience um, oh we can get into it yeah true love right there <laughs> um yeah maybe we could just start out with uh you know just just give us a quick capsule biography here of um you know how you started this group uh indivisible and um you know kind of uh to 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 maybe coin a phrase like fell ass backwards into like <laughs> national movement politics um, I don't think you coined that phrase. I think that phrase just existed. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I read it in the book. It's a distinct possibility. <laughs> that sounds about right. So my my background is as an anti-poverty advocate. Um, I started out working on homelessness issues uh, right around during the housing crisis in 2007, um, but joined Capitol Hill, the office of Congressman Lloyd Doggett, who's a progressive from Texas, in September of 2008, so the week that Lehman Brothers failed, I joined a congressional office. Um, and then a few months later, Barack Obama became president. And, you know, the 111th Congress gave me unrealistically high expectations for what government can get done uh, congressionally. Um, but it also exposed me to the Tea Party. Uh, the Tea Party was quite active in our district, and it was in Leah's as well. She was a congressional staffer with Tom Perriello, a progressive from a rural district in Virginia. Uh, we both had strong Tea Party presences. Uh, we both left Capitol Hill after the Democrats lost the majority, went to grad school and went off and did our own thing. Um, I was working on anti-poverty issues, doing advocacy think tank work. Leah was working on anti-human trafficking issues. So, you know, we were a lot of fun at parties, uh, a lot of good conversations. Um, but yeah. we were in, <laughs> we were in that we were in that, you know, nonprofit D.C. Uh, advocacy world when Donald Trump got elected. Um, and, you know, we were going through the stages of grief, just like all of our progressive friends. We kind of landed on anger uh, and stayed there. We kind of stewed in it for a while. And it was anger both at um, obviously the Trump and the incoming Republican administration and uh, Congress that was planning to do really terrible stuff, um, but also at the, you know, existing capital D Democratic um, establishment that was treating this election like same old, same old politics. And I remember vividly there was a, a two events in a in a 24 hour period. One was an interview with a future Trump appointee who was speaking positively about the Japanese internment camps during World War II as an example of what to do with Muslims and refugees and immigrants. And the other was an interview with incoming Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer uh, on the Democratic side who was saying, well, we lost the election, so we're just going to have to cut deals. Maybe infrastructure is something we can work on together. Um, and so there was this real terrifying future uh, in 2017, and it was one in which the bipartisan consensus was that the roads on the way to America's internment camps should be well paved. Um, that that yeah. was the future we were looking to. And so Lee and I, you know, we were former congressional staffers. We don't really have any applicable skills, but we know how Congress works. And so we thought what we can do is try to demystify what makes a member of Congress tick how you can affect their thinking and what you can do in your own community to fight back. And so we wrote this guide called the Indivisible Guide. It was really inspired, um, maybe you called it anti-inspiration, but inspired by the by the Tea Party, not their racism or violence, but by their pretty smart 
uh, strategy and tactics, which was to focus locally on their own members of Congress, uh, play defense and never give an inch. And yep. so I I tweeted out the indivisible guide to my you know, dozens of followers on Twitter uh, one evening while eating tortilla soup at the kitchen table uh, with Leah. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. Yeah. And so <clears throat> so now, you know, as you say in the book, right, I mean, people may not know this, but but there there is there is an indivisible chapter in every single congressional district. Is that is that correct? It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, that was amazing. You know, we tweeted out the guide and, you know, they all said that like the the immediate reaction was astonishing because people were reading this, you know, 23 page Google Doc uh, on saving American democracy. And, you know, when you normally when you put your ideas for you know political resistance online, nothing happens. And that's more or less what we expected. But so people were reading it and then everybody started contacting us. And of course, they all said initially the same thing, which was, you know, this this Google document is full of typos. Um, because any time you put something online and people actually read it, they are very helpful in, in pointing out all this. So we got most of the typos fixed. But the more amazing thing was that they weren't actually just reading it. They started forming these indivisible groups, these local groups like we recommended in one of the chapters of the guide. And so we started getting these emails saying, hey, I got 15 people together. We're indivisible Syracuse or we're indivisible East Tennessee or we're indivisible Tallahassee. And so, yes, yes, there are a ton of indivisible groups in San Francisco and Brooklyn and Austin and Chicago in blue areas and in city centers. But I, you know, just as amazing or more amazing. Uh, and I say this as a, somebody who grew up in rural Texas is all of these groups that formed in rural and red areas where they're, you know, Donald Trump run, won their district or won their their state. Um, but, you know, they they looked around and they thought, well, this this doesn't represent me and I want to do something. And so they formed an indivisible group. So, yes, in every congressional district from the, the deepest red to the bluest blue, there are these indivisible groups and and still are. I was in Grapevine, Texas, which is a roughly a Republican plus nine district north of Dallas two weeks ago. And we had 200 people out to discuss this book. Um, and they've been meeting every single week since early 2017, so that going on three years. Uh, and these are largely folks who were never politically active before. But the way they got active was to start their own little indivisible group, and in some cases, not so little. Yeah, and this, um, <clears throat> you know, the 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 book is, um, in a, in a sense, it's kind of it's kind of uh, uh, useful for any type of political faction. You know, it's just like some yeah. great yeah. nuts and bolts stuff in here about how you do how you bully congress into you know doing doing uh you know what either what you want or doing the things that they said they were going to do and then immediately tried to backtrack you know once they actually took office type of stuff yeah, yeah. and you know my my buddy uh david kaib um who's a you know a dc kind of lefty radical uh fellow he he wrote a, a post that's that stuck in my head that that uh the most the most fundamental part of politics is slack and the point of that is is that you know uh, yeah. in the in the united states there are like you know 80 million 100 million people who are barely involved in the political process at all and you know the kind of the question of politics whether you're talking about you know the the democrats winning big in 2008 versus republicans winning big in 2010 is you know, probably single digit percentage of people moving from one side to the other or or failing to vote or, uh, you know, just like trying really hard and getting involved with each other. And so, like, you know, the, I think there are a lot of 
that uh, that that reaction you you t- you mentioned from Schumer, I think, is very instructive and probably the cause of a lot of why uh, so many you know kind of NPR liberals have been so depoliticized over the years. You know that that they have had a leadership which has just been uh, completely pulls apart and and uh, sort of attempting not to learn the lessons of like the Republican success at, at mobilization, um, you know, for whatever reason, you know, like look at, look at how the Republicans beat you and then deliberately don't try to copy them and do it back. Um, and so, uh, maybe you could get into that, you know, you're, you're, this is kind of one of the big questions, I suppose, uh, moving forward. Like, uh, you know, we, we have, it seems like a pretty good chance of, having uh, a very progressive or like, a, you know, a, a self-avowed a socialist uh, at the top of the ticket in 2020, but the congressional leadership and most of the congressional caucus is still going to be like moderates, you know, and and Chuck Schumer especially, like, holy crap, you know, you like Peter King retires and he's like, hey, my buddy Peter King, he's the most racist man alive. And so... Can you can you tell us a little bit about your experience with uh, kind of riding herd on the Democratic um, 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 leadership uh, uh, caucus, for lack of a for lack of a better word, and um, you know how those folks might be um, um, either pushed or led to under, led to understand a, a, dif- a different kind of politics, maybe something like that. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I have several different thoughts. And let's see if I can make this into a coherent actual answer. Um, So the uh, the experience of building up Indivisible early on was not the experience of trying to build up the Democratic Party from the very beginning. What we have said is Indivisible is affirmatively not an arm of the Democratic Party. And in fact, on the very first page of the Indivisible Guide, we said half the battle is getting your Democratic representatives or senators to actually stand up for progressive values. Like that's why we wrote the guide in part was to say, look, we do not just have to treat this as politics as usual. We can, in fact, fight back. And in fact, fighting back is the morally right thing to do, but it's also the politically strategic thing to do. <laughs> this is how we will win. So we we will not win if we offer the, the, the populace a, a choice between Republican light and Republican because they're going to vote for the real thing if that's the choice. If we create a stark contrast and say that's not our America, what Trump is representing, we have a different vision. We're going to do better. Um, and and so that 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 means at times over the past three years, we have worked very closely with Democratic leadership or with Democratic members of the House or the Progressive Caucus. And at other times we've been on the outside um, sometimes literally outside their offices, uh, <laughs> demanding them to be better. And, you know, one, you know, we tell, we try to make the book both about, you know, what are the nuts and bolts lessons about how you can build and apply power, but we did not want to write a textbook. We wanted to make it interesting. So we try to draw out these 19 specific lessons about building and applying power through three stories. The, the first story that we tell is the story of the healthcare fight, the fight over saving the Affordable Care Act. And there was this one, you know, one moment in that fight that I'll never forget. And it was Father's Day 2017. I was outside Leah's parents' house on the phone with Chuck Schumer's staff, and we were asking them to withhold consent. 
We wanted them to withhold consent. And this seems wonky and in the weeds, but it's actually really important. You can, as a senator in the minority, withhold consent, so withhold unanimous consent, which is what's required to move forward anything in the Senate. And if you, uh, as the Democratic Party, as the minority party, if you choose to withhold consent, it slows everything down. It doesn't mean that you kill the majority's ability to accomplish things, but it does slow everything down. And we wanted them to slow everything down in June of 2017 because that would get us to July 4th recess. And we knew senators like McCain and Collins and Murkowski and Moran, these Republicans who were, you know, I don't call them moderates, but maybe gettable Republicans on the health care vote, they would be going home to their districts and we could generate a lot of pressure in their district around July 4th recess. And so we were asking Chuck Schumer to withhold consent to delay so we could put that pressure on Republicans later. But, you know, that was a procedural tactic that the Democrats at that point weren't ready to use. They were resistant to it. It was seen as, you know, too extreme to actually use those tools available to them. They wanted to, you know, just, you know, maybe we could convince some of these Republicans through a uh, good conversation or other means to come over to our side. And and so on that call, the the uh, senators, staffers told us, no, we understand that that's what you're looking for. We're not ready to do that now. And, and I said, that's OK. But just so you know, this Thursday, we have statewide sit-ins at every one of Senator Schumer's district offices in New York, and they're going to be asking to withhold consent. Um, <laughs> and And the next day, the Democrats announced they were withholding consent. Now, of course, If you ask any of them, I'm sure they will say, oh, we were always planning to do it. That was always the plan. This pressure had no no power. We we see that right now with the Democrats pursuing impeachment. They claim it was always part of the plan. In reality, what we see is this isn't a, a switch that gets flipped. In order to get your representatives to actually represent you and stand up for you, you got to apply pressure. And that's look, that's not just a hit on our current, you know, establishment leadership. It's not a, a hit on on any individual member of Congress. That's just life. If you want something, you got to ask for it and demand it. I, I think of the the story from FDR getting elected and it's 1933. He's in the Oval Office and a labor leader who was crucial in getting him elected comes in, says congratulations and then requests him. He wants to he re- requests an action from from newly elected uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And Roosevelt says, totally agree. I understand. Now make me do it. Yeah. And, and, and I think we've always got to make our elected officials do it. They or like anything else in the world, they respond to external stimuli. So if you apply the right stimuli, you're going to get a reaction. And you just got to apply the right kind of stimuli to get the reaction you want. Yeah, that um, I was actually talking with a, a historian the other day, and um, he was saying that that, that may be a, apocryphal. Um, that, <laughs> that very well may be. Yeah. yeah, I know uh, Obama used to quote it too. But, you know, here's take a more recent example. Uh, we talk about this in the book about the DACA fight. You know, we we remember uh, the creation of the uh, uh, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, the young young uh, immigrants who uh, got uh, the the Dreamers who got DACA. That that wasn't because uh, the Democrats who were in power out of uh, some benevolent act decided to give it to them. There were Dreamers holding hunger strikes in Obama re-election offices in 2012, and that is what preceded us getting DACA. Um, so I, I and that's not an apocryphal story that that is well documented that that yeah. happened. Well, um, yeah. No, so. Well, and come, you know, conversely, that whether it's true or not about FDR, it definitely was true about a lot of the stuff that he passed. Um, you know, early in his presidency, he uh, he wanted to be more of a centrist kind of a power broker. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he wanted to be the balance wheel between uh, capital and labor. 
And there was, you know, basically two things happened. On the one hand, um, you know, businesses didn't want to have any part of that kind of bargain. They wanted the whole pie or nothing. And then labor and, you know, more activist type of groups uh, just kept demanding stuff like uh, what would eventually become the, the NLRA, National Labor Relations Act. And, you know, FDR made a tactical calculation that like, well, uh, you know, if 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 you can't join them, then beat them with, uh, you know, big business which was exactly what he did because he was a consummate politician. But a lot of his great achievements, Social Security, uh, uh, the, the NLRA, the, um, you know, the the soak the rich tax plan, he did some public utility stuff, um, a lot of New Deal things, you know. They uh, would not have been nearly as good as they were if it were not been if if there were not those those uh, mobilized people those groups demanding that that especially Social Security that was a, there was a one sort of crackpot guy who who did a kind of almost indivisibles I forget his name but there were these groups all around the country. Eagle, uh, what's the that? Eagle, yeah. The Eagle. Yeah, they they were indivisible, like although a lot of that. So we talk about that in the book, the history of civic engagement, you know, pre 1960s, there were all these, you know, funny little community groups, the Eagles, the Oddfellows, the Elks, the Moose. Uh, and the Eagles was one uh, one version of this, you know, locally organized, nationally coordinated groups. And they were very into pensions. They worked on pensions at the state level. That was one of their things. Um, and they ended up working directly with both FDR directly on the Social Security Act and then later on uh, LBJ on the Medicare Act. Um, Social Security, um, uh, the act that they created Medicare and Medicaid, and in both of those instances got the one of the signing pins for the legislation because they were such a crucial part in getting that done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, <clears throat> yeah, and so, yeah, um, it, it, it's, it reminds me of the, the boiling frog story. It's like the, 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 um, the metaphor, the analogy or whatever that, that, that is not true. The, um, uh, that, that if you, if you heat a, if you heat a frog up, uh, once the water gets too hot, it will just jump out of the water. But it's such a nice demonstration of something that is true, which is that, you know, a lot of people can, uh, accustom themselves to terrible things, you know, if they just get steadily worse, you know, bit by bit. Um, at any rate, yeah. Bit, you know, activist mobilization groups definitely good, sort of constitutive of, uh, you know, a decent democracy. Um, and this, uh, uh, this maybe gets to a um, secondary question. And the, 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 you know, at the end of the book, you have a lot of um, a great chapter on like reforming democracy. So, well, first of all, can you can you just sort of run through this because there's a lot of stuff in here that like it, it, it's it's kind of in some ways smacks of like goo goo, you know, like good good government type of reforms, yeah. but in the others and in, in, yeah. in some other ways, it's like really radical. You're talking about some big changes to the Senate and so forth. So could you could you go through that for us and what's the justification there? Yeah, I think it's fundamentally about power. And I, I think we we do ourselves a disservice if we don't talk about this in terms of power, because the other side clearly understands that 15 of the last 19 Supreme Court justices have been appointed by Republicans. We know that in 20 years, half the country is going to live in eight states. So half the country, which is more conservative, more rural, more white 
is going to have 84 senators and the other half is going to have 16. Where we are headed is to a place where there is permanent conservative control of the Senate and by connection, the courts. And there's not going to be anything we can do about it at that point at the federal level. They will have a, uh, a grip on national power that is very difficult, if not impossible, to dislodge. And so we view American democracy right now as a, at a real co- crossroads. And in 15 months, we could be looking at a a pro-democracy president and a pro-democracy Congress that's able to actually pass some legislation in 2021 that prevents that dystopian future I just described from becoming reality, or that's where we're headed. And the, the key question in our mind is how do we entrench people power? The key question in our mind is how do we make this representative democracy of ours actually represent the people? Because the other side understands exactly what we do, which is the country is getting more diverse and more unequal. That's just, that's a reality that is occurring. And so they look at that and they're terrified. They look at that and they're terrified because they know that you can't maintain a policy agenda that's committed to tax cuts for corporations and billionaires and installing religious rights zealots on the courts and maintain a winning coalition. You're not going to keep on winning if you have a representative democracy. So Faced with that basic reality, they've got a choice. You can either moderate your positions or you can systematically disenfranchise this rising electorate. And it's very clear what they've chosen. And to be clear, this isn't a new choice. This isn't Donald Trump's choice. This is a choice that literally goes back decades. We we kick off the book on chapter one with a quote that's four decades old. Uh, It's a quote from an architect of the modern conservative movement, this guy named Paul Weyrich. He was the founder of the Heritage Foundation um, and uh, really helped forge the link between the religious right and corporate power. And he's speaking to a group in 1980, and he says, uh, I don't want everybody to vote. Frankly, our leverage in elections goes up as the voting populace goes down. And, you know, I think this is one of these moments where politicians actually say what they mean and actually reveal what the real strategy is. I think it's, it was very smart. It was a correct analysis that yeah. he recognized that if you allow this electorate to actually vote on the agenda, we will lose. And so the only option is to disenfranchise, to rig the rules of the system, to, infranch- to, to entrench the power of this you know, white plutocracy, which is what they've done. And yes, Trump benefits from this. Yes, Trump exacerbates it. But you see this anti-democratic action in, in places like Georgia and Wisconsin and North Carolina and Texas and Arizona, like any state where Republicans have gained control, they're they're rigging the rules to entrench their power. Uh, and yeah. so we recognize that we're, we're in a fight for American democracy right now. And we're we have a limited window of opportunity if we do everything right in 2020 to actually pass legislation 2021. So we really constrained our thinking to what can be done legislatively. There are a ton of uh, amendments to the Constitution we would love to see. I would love an amendment to the Constitution to uh, undo, reverse Citizens United. I would love a constitutional amendment to eliminate the Electoral College. Hell, I'd love a constitutional amendment to take out the Senate. That's not in the cards right now. 
we're not going to be able to do that. Our house is on fire right now. So the question is, what can you pass in 2021 in this brief window of opportunity we've got? And and we go through the options. It turns out there's quite a bit you can do. You can enfranchise 30 million plus new Americans, whether they're immigrant Americans, incarcerated or formerly incarcerated Americans, young Americans. You can make D.C. a state. You can give self-determination to the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico and Guam. You can expand the house. You can create multi-member districts with ranked choice voting. You can produce a, a, a historic investment in local media so we can fund great podcasts like this and more. <laughs> I'm in There's favor so of that much, one. Brian, we, you, you have an interest in this. There's so much that we can do legislatively that it's not going to solve all of our problems, but it will reverse the course we're on, which is a permanent Mitch McConnell-like rule that doesn't actually represent America. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, definitely big podcast is behind the... the <laughs> The democracy agenda, um, but th- this gets to the second the second part of my question here, which is a kind of you know um, something that 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 doesn't make much of an appearance in the book is this, is like uh, you know ideology, um, you know yeah. be, because uh, you know you you in in sort of theory and practice of of democracy, like you can you can talk about. Uh, you know, like setting up the rules that they are fair, and and so that the, like the people are being represented, and the politicians aren't picking their own voters instead of the other way around. But you know, like when you elect someone, you want them to make uh, you know, uh, substantive changes to you know how things work, consistent with you know a normative framework for you know the way that that uh, that that society should be ordered, and. You know, one of the big problems, I think, um, especially with, uh, you know, the sort of like outgoing generation of Democratic Party elites is that they have a terrible moral framework. Um, you know, I think of, you know, Obama uh, <clears throat> and, well, Tim Geithner specifically using the HAMP money to basically bail out the banks through the back door and uh you know not really doing anything to stop 9 million people from losing their homes from forged uh documents um and so i mean do you i guess how do you conceive of your group in the context of like uh, it, it reminds me of like i think smaller but much more ideological and much more kind of political uh uh groups uh like like DSA you know, uh, who who are uh, trying to sort of change the way Americans think about like basic morality and and politics, um, is it sort of a complementary thing, or or what's your view? Yeah, I mean, I do think of it as pretty darn complementary in the sense that uh, if you ask yourself why why can't we pass a, a significant health care bill? Why can't we pass a significant climate bill? Why can't we literally get a vote on a minor gun violence prevention bill? And the, the answer to all of that is that we have a representative government that isn't representative. Um, and so I don't think you can get any of the big 21st century social and economic policy reforms that we want to see without making democracy actually responsive to the will of the people. Uh, so yeah. I, I think it's a, an absolute prerequisite. Now, it is worth noting that, you know, indivisible groups 
they they're made up of people who were former Democrats, who were former independents, who were former Republicans, who were Bernie supporters, who were Hillary supporters. It's actually a little bit difficult to place them on the left right spectrum. And if you only say left right, although we're affirmatively progressive, I, I do think it's too simplistic a, a way to, I don't know, put them in a box, because I think there's a, this other axis that we often look at, which is. To what yes, left, right on social and economic issues, but also to what extent do you view the current moment we're in as a real crisis in American democracy? To what extent yeah. do you think we're facing an existential threat? To what extent do you think we should be using every tool available to our 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 our, our leaders who we've elected to fight back against this? And uh, it, while indivisible groups might have different opinions on you know, specific social and economic reforms, they're pretty darn unified on that other axis of analysis, which is we should be fighting back with everything we've got. American democracy is on the brink. We've got to save it. So, you know, our the, the radical idea at the heart of indivisible is that in a representative democracy, your representatives ought to represent you. It's not what we've got. But the theory is if you produce that. From that is going to flow your electoral wins. From that is going to flow your progressive policy wins because our ideas are better and they're more popular. But until we have a, a democracy that actually reflects that full diversity of the country, we're not going to get any of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I've unfortunately got to wrap it up now, but uh, any last comments, things you, things you wanted to, to uh, make sure to mention before, before I let you go? Well, you know, I just say you know, Indivisible um, is not just about Leah and me. And in fact, the book largely is not about me or Leah. And that's intentional. We didn't we didn't put our names on the, the cover intentionally because we wanted this to be about the movement. Uh, every we, we got an advance from Simon and Schuster. There will be royalties from Simon and Schuster. Literally every dime of all of that goes to Indivisible Save Democracy Fund. And that's because we want to grow the movement. The whole purpose of this is we think American democracy is in jeopardy. We think that we will have a brief window of opportunity to save it. And in order to do that, you got to build a pro-democracy movement. So the way the way that we envision doing that is building up these indivisible groups to be as big and powerful as possible. Yes, to defeat Donald Trump. Yes, to take the Senate and hold the House. But even beyond that, in 2021, to show up at congressional district offices and say, great, we put you in power. Now, where's our democracy bill? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. And, uh, you know, again, I would uh, I would definitely recommend, you know, almost regardless of what your politics are, at least if you are listening to this podcast, uh, <laughs> uh, ch you know, check it out. D just a lot of great common sense stuff in there about how how you twist arms, uh, you know, politically and get this janky uh, 18th century jalopy of a, of a constitutional structure to sort of like stagger forward another uh, another 10 or 20 feet. And so um, I uh, uh, it's definitely worth the price of admission for that alone. And, uh, you know, not <laughs> a parallel sort of thing, not a, not affiliated officially with the Democratic Party. And um, so anyway, um, Ezra Levin, thanks for coming on the show. The, uh, the book is called We Are Indivisible. A blueprint, a blueprint for democracy after Trump, and uh, yeah, available from your preferred literature distribution facility. We'll, we'll definitely link to it in the description. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Great talking. Likewise. Take care, and thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>